0: Let's turn to another of the psalms, this time in the prose version, and we read together Psalm 144. Title uh, of David, as we've said, we, I think, are right to take these as reliable traditions uh, as to the origins of the psalms. They're not uh, generally regarded as part of the inspired text, uh, but they are ancient Indications of authorship and sometimes of the circumstances in which the psalm was penned. Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a fleeting shadow. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. The hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I will sing a new song to you, O God, on the ten-stringed lyre I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. The Bible often describes the life of the child of God in the language of warfare. It's not unusual in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament perhaps, particularly, but also in the New Testament. We find ourselves as the people of God in a spiritual battle. And it's against spiritual enemies. Paul writes in the classic passage in Ephesians 6, it's not against flesh and blood, it's against principalities, it's against powers, it's against the forces of spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. At times that battle is particularly fierce. Maybe circumstances or an experience we're passing through Other times, perhaps, the the sense of battle abates a little. We may feel we're more in a time of relative peace, but always the the battle is there, and very quickly, and suddenly it can flare up again. We're, We're never discharged from the army of the Lord in this life. And, of course, we long to escape from the battle, Wouldn't it be wonderful to be free of that combat against the forces of evil? And if you moved in some supposedly Christian circles, you would find varieties of teaching that would tell you, well, uh, there is an escape from this constant struggle. There's a way to be free from the battle. Uh, If only you follow this path or this course of action or seek some kind of second blessing and if you receive it it'll lift you above the battlefield it'll put you in a condition of some sort of higher life be described in different ways in different circles but essentially these are various prescriptions for escaping the struggle and the battle and of course those are attractive and there are ideas that draw in that many the problem is those are false promises, and those who believe them and act on them will find sooner or later, often sooner than actually the battle is still going on just as it did in the past, and they may become disappointed indeed entirely disillusioned with the Christian faith, a profoundly sad thing now we do win battles by the grace of God. We're not suggesting that we are doomed to constant defeat in the Christian life, far from it. By God's grace, we do triumph in many of the conflicts. But when we do triumph, on the other side of them, there'll be another battle and another and another until finally we're with the Lord. That is how it's going to be. And that's what the New Testament leads us to expect in our Christian living. That's reflected when we turn to the Old Testament, the Psalms, and the experience of King David, one who wrote many of the Psalms. On his way to the throne, there were many times of conflict, hard times, flight from Saul, the dangers he faced. We've seen something of that recently. For example, when we looked at Psalm 142, It was written, we are told, when he was in the cave. And that was before David was king and Saul was trying uh, to destroy him, hunting him. And David might well have thought once he was established on the throne uh, as God's king, uh, the difficulties would be at an end. Things would be easier. He didn't have Saul pursuing him. There weren't the dangers that he had had to deal with. And yet that wasn't the case. The enemies changed, but there was still warfare, there was still struggle, there were still battles to be fought. And we find that reflected in the psalm we want to look at this evening, Psalm 144. I'm calling it a psalm of the King. Psalm like one hundred and forty two is a psalm of a man on the way to being king. Now in Psalm one hundred and forty four he is the king. And here are situations that David as God's ruler had to face A Psalm of the King. We see first in looking at this Psalm, verses one to four, a great God. A great God. It is, I think, fairly clear this is a psalm written uh, after David has succeeded Saul as king of Israel. Verse 2, he refers uh, to God as the one who subdues peoples under me. Now, if you look in the margin, if you have an NIV, for example, uh, another possibility is he subdues my people under me. Personally, I think that is probably the preferable reading here. But either way, This is a man who rules over others. They've been subdued under his authority by God. Significant too, in verse 10, uh, you find that David uses a reference to kings. God's the one who gives victory to kings. And then in parallel with it, who delivers his servant, David. And the way that Hebrew poetry works is often, Psalms will make a statement and then, in the next line, as it were, in parallel, you say much the same thing in a slightly different form. That's how Hebrew poetry generally works. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't like uh, English poetry. But that parallelism suggests that David, too, is among the kings referred to in verse 10. So I think we're right that this is a royal psalm. This is David reigning over God's people. Perhaps fairly early in his reign. And David really is taking stock of his situation. As you read through the psalm, I think that's the sense that you get. But most interesting is that his focus, certainly in the first four verses, but also in the, the succeeding verses, his focus is on the Lord. It's not himself and his troubles, though they're there, but the focus is on the Lord. That's where it must always be for God's people, not least in times of struggle and conflict. Take our eyes off the Lord. We are in danger. And David thinks first of God's greatness in the psalm, the opening verses. That's immediately what he thinks of. And it. It's exuberant at language. David is delighting in the Lord as he thinks About him. Praise be to the Lord. Of course, that's the covenant name, the God who gives himself to his people in eternal love. He is the Lord, the Lord my rock. And generally, in the Old Testament, when God's referred to as a rock, in the background certainly is the rock of Exodus at 17, the rock from which God gave water to his people. Moses struck the rock, but he struck it twice. He shouldn't have, but he did. He was to speak to the rock, but the water flowed. And when God is thought of as a rock, he is the one who supplies life-giving spiritual water to his people. It's a beautiful picture of what God means uh, to David. God of salvation and deliverance, refreshment for his soul David has experienced uh, these perfections of God in hard times. He trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, not just for easy times. And having the Lord as your rock isn't a passport to having things easy. For David, there was war, there were battles. And that did not for a second mean that God wasn't his rock, but it was in those settings, of difficult settings, that God was his rock. And of course it's in the difficult times of struggle, in the spiritual battle, that you discover whether God really is your rock or not. My rock. And as he thinks of war and battle, that language carries over. Uh, into these opening uh, verses. Look at the terms he uses. Fortress, stronghold, deliverer, shield, uh, military imagery. All speaking of safety and security. God's a stronghold, a fortress. The words that David uses in several cases uh, have the the, the root meaning of something that's lifted up. uh, And you would build your fortress on a high point to give security. And God is that place for David. Fortress and stronghold. Notice especially there in verse 2, my loving God. And that's how David thinks of God. One who loves him with an everlasting, committed, covenant love. That's the Lord. And surely that's supremely precious to God's people, that he is our loving God. There are so many things to us, but above all, he's our loving God, God of covenant of grace by which we're saved And this is a God who's put David in a particular position of authority, the subduing peoples or subduing my people. But God's given rule and victory to David, and he's recognizing that. Not for a moment is David saying to himself, Well, I'm the king. Look at what I have achieved, how well I have done. It's God who's put him there. And it's God that he honors. And it's God that he wants to serve. God's greatness, and that leads him on as it, as it often does to think secondly of man's frailty. Verses 3 and 4, what is man? Uh, and surely if we know the Psalms, our minds will also go to Psalm 8. What is man? The same question that the psalmist asks as he looks, for example, at the night sky. He sees the greatness of creation. And what is man? Powerful expression of how frail man is. He's like a breath. He's like a, a fleeting shadow. It's gone almost before you notice it. And that's what human life is like in contrast to God. It's just a blink, even a long human life. Think of some of the the ancients we read of in Genesis. Lives running into the hundreds of years. And to God, they're a blink. A day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. It's nothing to God. We are a breath, a fleeting breath. Shadow. What is man? What are we that God should condescend to deal with us? And yet, that's what's so wonderful. What is man that you care for him? We may be a breath, we may be a fleeting shadow, but in God's eyes and in God's heart, we're not nothing. He cares for us. That's part of the wonder, that's part of his greatness. We think of how frail we are. He should condescend to deal with us graciously and care for us. A big view of God will inevitably lead us to, to a small and a realistic view of ourselves. If we understand who God is, that'll deliver us from inflated ideas of our own importance. God's greatness and man's frailty. And David here, of course, is speaking. He's writing as the king. God's king. And he points us forward, as the whole of the Old Testament does, to a greater king. This is always how, as Christians, we approach the Old Testament. We did it all the way through Genesis, you'll remember. And to see there, events, people and so forth that point us forward to a greater fulfillment. And that's true of the Psalms and it's true of Psalm 144. What David writes points us forward to a greater king. The one in whom all the Psalms and the whole Old Testament finds its fulfillment, of course. It's the one who's described in Revelation 19 as King of Kings and Lord of lords. The king from David's line who's promised in the covenant of 2 Samuel 7. And we looked at that passage as we worked through the books of Samuel some time ago. The covenant with David had always in view a greater king, King Jesus. And in this psalm we don't only hear David's voice but we hear the voice Of King Jesus. Delighting in his father's. Delight was to do his father's will. As he says a number of times. In the gospels. Giving. The the father who gives him. The victory of. The cross and the empty tomb. That provides redemption. For his people. That is King Jesus. Who rejoices here. Before his father. A king, of course, who shared our human frailty. One who's a nature like us with its weaknesses uh, that died on the cross. This is our king who shares our nature, but our king who's won the victory that provides salvation for us. And because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ as his people, then we too can take these words as ours God and grace has subdued us to the rule of King Jesus we belong to him and we can delight in the victory that we have in Christ victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the powers of evil God has given it to us and so we reign with Christ in a real sense we are kings with him and we can sing these words of David. We can sing these words of Christ and we can sing these words regarding ourselves, subdued to the king, willing subjects, and in a wondrous way also reigning with him. A great God. That sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. In the second place, verses 5 to 11, we have a present crisis. A present crisis begins with the joy, the celebration, the triumph. But then we recognize David is not sitting idly and comfortably in Jerusalem with no worries on his mind. He is in a time of trial, of difficulty, of warfare. Again, as commentator I've mentioned a number of times, Derek Kidner puts it, he says, recollection is now the springboard for intercession. That's how it ought to be for us. When we think back to what God has done for us, the ways in which he has blessed us, we're not living in the past. And there are people like that. There are sadly even sometimes Christians like that. They live in the past. What God did years ago. But to look back to the past is to enable us To look to the future with strength, with faith, with trust in the Lord. Strength for the present, strength for the future. We look back in order to look forward. As the psalmist sings in Psalm 115, the Lord remembers us, the past, and will bless us. So here for David. And it is the Lord who looms much larger than the enemies. David is not denying their enemies to be faced. He is not minimizing the threat that they pose. Certainly not. He is not pretending that things are better than they really are. But nevertheless, his God, the God whose greatness he's been thinking about, those loom so much larger than the enemies to be faced. And Again, powerful at poetic language as David described what he wants God to do for him. What is he asking of the Lord in these difficult circumstances? And there you have it, verse 5. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. He's seeking that God will act powerfully to deliver him from the enemies that he's facing. It's language that that recalls what happened at Sinai. What happened at Sinai? There God came down on the mountain to meet with Moses and with Israel. Very much the language of God's appearance there that's recorded in Exodus 19. A mighty God who comes down to take action For his people, and that's what David seeks, Lord. I'm in the mighty waters. I'm facing enemies, but Lord, you are greater. Part the heavens, come down, be to me what I need in this crisis. And David, as king, is facing an upsurge of activity on the part of his enemies. He describes them in verse 11 as foreigners. Uh, he's not been racist. He's not been ethnocentric and saying Israel's all that matters. But what he's facing is the reality that the surrounding nations wanted to destroy Israel. We've seen that when we've studied the historical books of the Old Testament. The nations wanted to destroy Israel. And behind their activity was the hand of Satan seeking to destroy the people of God so that the Messiah would not be born from that nation. So there's a spiritual dimension to the war. But it is the surrounding nations who pose a threat. And David refers to mouths that are full of lies. He wonder, David perhaps thinking of the duplicitous diplomacy of the nations, the weasel words, of course, that so characterize international relations still today. He might well speak the same language if he saw how the nations relate to one another, the lack of trustworthiness and honesty. And David is experiencing that. Surrounded by enemies, enemies who are thoroughly untrustworthy. And it is a serious crisis. Rescue me from the mighty waters. He's not literally in the water. He's not drowning. It's picture language. The mighty waters of the nations, the surrounding enemies. And he seeks that God will reach down, pull him out, lift him out of this crisis, deliver him and deliver the people of God. Because from the human perspective, it seems God's people are about to be overwhelmed. It's beyond David's capacity. It's beyond Israel's capacity. Only God can deliver them. And David knows it. In verse 9, we have confidence that's born of faith. In this crisis, David isn't despairing, he's not downcast, depressed. God is, he knows, the one who gives victory. And he holds on to that truth. This is what he knows is the case, as we need to do in a time of crisis. Hold on to what you know to be true. Don't be shaken from what you know is the truth, particularly about God himself. And by that faith, David is able to vow I will sing a new song to you. Deliverance hasn't come yet. He's anticipating what God's going to do, but he knows God will do it. God won't abandon him, and he will not be finally overwhelmed. But it is a spiritual battle. The hand of Satan is behind the attacks of the nation, seeking to destroy God's king. Not that they knew that's what they were doing, They weren't consciously serving Satan, but in practice they were. They wanted to destroy the king. And Satan has always wanted to destroy God's king. Above all, of course, King Jesus. That's why when Christ was born into the world, there was a tremendous upsurge of demonic activity. Think of the Gospels many references to demons, but you don't find that everywhere in your Bible. There was a tremendous upsurge when Christ came into the world. Why? Because Satan recognized the threat that King Jesus posed to him and to his kingdom. And so he was doing everything he could to oppose Christ, to turn him away from the cross, to destroy him, anything to prevent his mission being fulfilled. That mission that God had spoken of right back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And when Christ came into the world, the seed of the woman, he came to crush the head of the serpent. And so the serpent did everything he could to try and destroy him, in vain, of course. Here's a king who's come to deliver. At what a cost! The laying down of his life on the cross so that sinners like us could be saved from sin and from judgment. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. And there he was in the mighty waters. Might he have thought of a psalm like 144? Who knows? Because he knew his Bible. If it wasn't a psalm, he may well have thought of others. But he was in the mighty waters in Gethsemane, facing the cross. And we see there's something of what Christ passed through for you and for me. The agonies he endured. In Hebrews 5 and verse 7, we're told that he cried out to his father, He sought deliverance with loud cries and tears. Very powerful description. There's Jesus in Gethsemane. Seeking deliverance if it were possible. And the writer there in Hebrews 5 goes on. He was heard because of his reverent submission. He was heard. How was Christ heard? He still went to the cross. He's sustained by the Holy Spirit. He was raised in triumph. He was heard. God's plan was fulfilled. He was delivered in the Father's way through the way of the cross. He won the victory on behalf of his people. He was delivered in the resurrection. He has triumphed. And if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we share in his victory. And that's the good news of the gospel. We triumph in and with Christ. And so in our spiritual warfare, the battle that Paul describes so vividly in Ephesians 6 against the rulers of darkness and so forth, we're not unsure about the outcome. We're not left to wonder, will we be overcome by the enemy? Will we be destroyed We have the victory in Christ. He has triumphed. He has been delivered from death and he will deliver us also. And we have the victory by God's grace and by God's power over the enemies that rage against us. Same enemy that Christ faced and he's conquered them. And we can say in our spiritual battles why would we give in to the enemy when he's been defeated? He has the mark of Christ's heel in his face. Why would we give in to a defeated enemy? That sadly so often we do. And we're fools. and we don't need to. The enemy is defeated. The Father has delivered his Son from the mighty waters. The tomb is empty and in Christ we have the victory. And by God's grace we can experience it day by day as we follow Christ. There is a present crisis that David is facing and we are in a battle. We are in the Lord's army. We don't volunteer we don't have a choice will we serve in the battle or will we stay safe at home we're in the trenches we're in the front line but we're in a battle that Christ has won for us and we can cry out in the language of the psalm for God's deliverance conscious that he is the one who gives victory and trusting in him that's what we'll experience a great God, but also we have a present crisis. And finally in the concluding verses of the psalm, we have a blessed people. Verses 12 to 15, a blessed people. Psalm ends with a a beautiful vision of blessing. David is looking in faith to the fruit of, of what God graciously is going to do for him. He's looking ahead in faith and trust in God and he knows God will bless him and will bless the people of God richly. Because the pattern that God has decreed for his people is that we reach the place of blessing through trials Now we'd like it to be an easier way. We'd like to reach the place of blessing without all the trouble and not without the strife and without the battle and so on. But there isn't an easier way. Think of Christ Himself. How did he reach the place of blessed victory? It was via the cross. The cup did not pass from him. He had to drink it. And that was the path his father had ordained for him by which he would reach the place of victory and triumph. And the fact is, it's no different for us. We will walk the same path if we want to reach the place of blessing. We must be prepared. For the trials and the tests. Because that is how God leads his people. There isn't an easy way to blessing. That's often the the, the false promise of false teaching. An easier way. Just as Satan came to Jesus and offered ways of avoiding the cross. And Jesus wouldn't take them. Because he knew The easy path was not the path to blessing. It was the path to failure. And for us, the path to blessing will be the hard path, the testing path. That's how God ordains it. But David looks in confidence to the blessings God's going to give. Uh, Blessings on the community of his people. You read those, those verses. And David writes about our sons and their youth, our daughters. It's not simply blessing for David himself. That's not what he's anticipating. It's blessing for the community of God's people. Yes, he's included in it. He will receive blessing, but not alone. It's the community of the redeemed. It's the flock of the Lord's sheep. Take the language of John 10 we've been looking at recently. It's not just blessing for me. It's blessing for the Lord's people. That's what David seeks. That's the heart we are to have. That God will deliver us and will deliver all of his people and bring them to a place of blessing. And you read the language David uses there? Language of prosperity. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands. It's the language, of course, of Old Testament agricultural society. Crops, flocks and herds, tokens of the blessing of God. All the needs of his people will be provided for. End of verse 14 uh, is tricky. There are different views of what exactly... It means, I think the NIV broadly is right, there'll be no breaching of walls. Nobody's going to break in to take away our blessing. No going into captivity. Nobody's going to drag us away from the fellowship of God's people in the place of blessing. It's a language of security as God watches over and protects his people. Peace and protection; Those are wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. It applies, of course, initially to the nation of Israel as David reigned over it. And Israel was unique as God's covenant people. No other nation is in exactly the position Israel was. And yet, surely we'd long for such blessing for our nation, for any nation. There would be prosperity under the blessing of God. Because it's God-centered. This is not a prayer for a rich nation, a strong economy in and of itself. The end of the psalm is crucial. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And of course... Most nations, our own included, would be happy with the prosperity, with, metaphorically, the barns packed full and the herds and the flocks growing. The problem is they don't want God, the Lord, to be their God. And yet you can't have it that way. Any kind of prosperity apart from our God being the Lord is empty. And it will disappear. Eventually it will ebb away. Think of how many civilizations that once were wealthy and powerful and influential. And they're nowhere but in the history textbooks. They're gone. Their God wasn't the Lord. They wouldn't last And if our nation's God is not the Lord, and for most it isn't the Lord, what prospect of real blessing and prosperity can there be? We should pray for our nation that there will be a turning to the true God, that he will be Lord. We might think it's too big a prayer. We might think we could never see a day when that would happen And maybe we won't. But God is great. And who knows what he may yet do. And for us of course. As the Lord's people. There's the blessedness. Of having. God the Lord as our God. The blessedness of knowing him. The blessedness of receiving eternal life. The blessings we thought of in John 10 this morning we have everything we need for life and godliness as Peter says we are wealthy people how sad when Christians sometimes live like paupers your spiritual life is weak and all those resources are there available to God's people if we seek them all we need and Christ has purchased it by his blood Blessed are the people of whom this is true. May it be true of us as God's people, faithful disciples of the Lord, faithful covenant people, people whose God is the Lord. The wealth may never be in the terms the world measures or values, but it will be true riches. And riches that will never be taken from us. Riches we'll have throughout eternity in the new creation. And then the barns will be full. The flocks and herds will flourish. And the Lord will be the very center of everything we are, everything we do. And it will be a delight. David has begun to enjoy this blessedness. Saints who have gone before us have begun to enjoy the blessedness. May we be those whose God is the Lord and will share in these riches by God's grace.